Welcome to Ontario Lab, a podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff, recorded right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Alvin Tejo. And I'm Sam Andrew. Today we will be going over the big week we just had uh, with the province's new reopening plan, Canada Christian College getting the hard no from the post-secondary education quality assessment board. Uh, A lot of stuff happened last week, but I think it's also an important time of the year, less known than some of those headlines, is the fact that it is the end of the spring legislative calendar. The uh, legislature or the ledge will not be sitting this week. We'll come back next week to wrap up the spring session and then won't come back until September. So we're looking at the end of the government's time to legislate to pass big bills. There will be no question period for the next couple months. Uh, No people in funny robes checking their books as a bunch of people yell over their heads. And it's been, I think, just an absolutely wild session. So in addition to talking about some of the headlines today, we wanted to look back on a little bit of the wild ride that we've been on this particular uh, spring. So we thought we'd recap that with a special edition of our favorite legislative game, Good Bill, Bad Bill, Sketchy Bill, to help us out with this wide range of topics. Very few people pay more attention to all things Queen Park than Queen's Park Observer reporter uh, Sabrina Nanji. So welcome her back to Ontario Loud. Sabrina, hi. Hi, thanks for having me. Delighted to have you back. How are you doing? Pretty good. Like you said, the the ledge isn't sitting this week, so we've got a little bit of a reprieve. We don't have to be covering question period in depth, what's going on in the House. There's one more sitting week where we'll see a lot of agenda items get get through the the due process and then it's summer things are pretty busy with me as you mentioned starting queens park observer but yeah really excited to break it all down with you guys today absolutely and that's actually maybe before we jump into the the topic you mentioned queens park observer which is a bit of a new project i think the last time you were on it was queens park i i think i introduced you as queens park today i think our audience would be interested in this so i'm just wondering if you can tell us a little bit about queens park observer Yeah, you're right. It is pretty much brand new. This is week three uh, of the first month. I'm doing it free for everyone. So everyone can go to qpobserver.ca. You can sign up for the email so you don't miss a thing. And you're right. I worked at Queen's Park Today previously, which is another newsletter that covers Ontario. I before that worked at QP Briefing. I like to think that I kind of know what what those newsletters do well and maybe what they're missing and what I can bring to the table. So I like to think of Queen's Park Observer as the daily newspaper of Queen's Park. I cover basically everything, politics, policy, what's going on in the house, some fun stuff. Today I had a little breakdown of the political ads that all the parties are running on Facebook. Uh, Basically anything that political nerds like you guys, me, and I assume your listeners as a term of endearment want want to hear. And yeah, so far the response has been pretty great. There's going to be a lot more stuff coming up. It's for a year out from an election. So there's so much to dig into on nominations, riding health. I've been digging into some finances. Don't want to scoop myself. So stay tuned for some more stuff to come out. And like I said, it's qpobserver.ca where you guys can sign up. It's run on Substack, which is a platform that more journalists are, are are heading towards now. It's an opportunity to be totally independent, do your own thing. And so far, people seem to be liking it. So definitely sign up and let me know your thoughts. I, I really enjoy, Sabrina, the, the niche that you've carved out around parties, party politics, what they're spending, how their nomination processes are going. That's a lot of what we try to do here as well about pulling the curtain back and showing people how these things are done. And I think this morning's briefing around Facebook ad spending was interesting considering it looks like some of the other parties haven't done such a good job in terms of capturing their audience when they're paying for ads in other provinces by accident, or maybe it was on purpose. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. The PCs of the NDP had some ads running in Quebec. I didn't see the specifics of what they are, but Facebook does show you quite a bit on the back end. I don't know. I'm just purely speculating right now. I know that the PCs might have been advertising about the borders, you know, in Quebec as well. That's something we've seen them running a lot of ads about lately. I think Alvin, you and I have talked previously a lot about political parties are a gateway to democracy in our system here. So I definitely love like shedding a light on them. There's been a lot of drama on the liberal side with nominations. So that's that could be in part because they have the most ground to make up with seats to fill or I should say candidates to fill out of the 124 because they were so decimated in the last election. They're not the only ones that have drama. There's stories on the way about the PCs and the NDP as, as we get closer to the election. Yeah, if any of your listeners have any tips, I'm all ears. Please, please reach out. I, I will say I also enjoyed, I, I actually don't, can't think of another place you can get like staffing updates, like when there's a new chief of staff appointed or stuff. That is for anyone following doing government relations work or anything like that. That's super valuable knowledge. And I, it's having it in one place as opposed to like periodically going through InfoGo. It's a great, it's, it's a great service. GR professionals, I think would also be super interested in this. <laughs> yeah, InfoGo is notoriously slow, yeah. but I have been stalking that website for vacancies and trying to track staff moves, especially. I think the PCs have seen a lot of turnover in recent months. Some people are speculating that they're having trouble filling certain positions. We might start to see more staff movements as we get closer to the election and folks start to focus on the campaign side of things. But I am sure there's a lot of factors in the reasons for the turnover. Yes, yeah, thank you for saying that. I'm so glad you guys are enjoying it. Let's go into the government's latest, biggest project. They probably had lots of staff hours and maybe had staff uh, thinking. But it, it's something that actually went fairly well. Uh, and that's the province's reopening plan, which launched last week to actually okay reviews. John Michael McGrath, who previously has been super, I think, outspoken in his criticism of previous policies of this government, called it an actually decent plan. The Ontario Hospital Association has come out and supported the reopening plan. And the Canadian Federation of Independent Business did not support it. So just by those reactions themselves, that sort of put me in a good place about the plan. And I think the reason you saw the support from the actors you did is because it hewed pretty closely to what the science table recommended, who released last week also a increased case count projection. And one of those scenarios showed a continual decline in case if the reopening was delayed into the middle of June, as opposed to doing it right now. And that's what the province did. The plan itself sets up three steps with at least 21 days between them to allow the province to monitor case counts, trends with the virus and vaccines. Moving between steps seems largely linked to the vaccination rates, but will also follow other data. So in the first step, estimated to begin the week of June 14th, when at least 60% of Ontarians have had at least one dose, we're looking at outdoor gatherings, we're looking at outdoor dining, they're really putting a focus on outdoor here, but there'll also be some limited retail, so you'll be able to go into stores with reduced capacity, do overnight camping, all that kind of thing. In step two, indoor gatherings of up to five people will be allowed. The outdoor gathering limits will increase for the nerds listening. I again said with endearment, we get libraries again. And in step three, at least 80% one, uh, one dose, 25% two dose, we're going to see larger capacity limits for indoor and outdoor gathering. Still some measures, but we're going to see indoor dining come back, karaoke with restrictions. Curious to know what kind of restrictions would make karaoke in any way safe, but indoor live music to some degree. And of course, because this is a Doug Ford plan, we saw separate lines for strip clubs, casinos, and bingo halls. So I just want to throw open the floor here to thoughts on the plans. And for a government that's chosen to deviate from the science table, so much throughout the course of the pandemic. How do we think they landed on something like this? 
There's two things that I'm still worried about with this plan. And I agree, Chris, it is better. They got rid of the color system that was confusing and they have clear sort of benchmarks and what will happen once we hit each of those benchmarks. But as announced this weekend, Canada has surpassed the U.S. in first dose take-up. And the U.S. has started talking about how their concerns with take-up is because of vaccine hesitancy. And this doesn't address that very much. And to get to 80%, you're going to have to get a lot of people who are hesitant about taking the vaccine and haven't been taking it for the last three months, even though they've been eligible. So I think some messaging around that would be great. The second front, it doesn't really talk about schools. And as a dad of three kids, something that's very concerning for me, we haven't vaccinated all education workers yet. You do need that sort of waiting period. Sick Kids Hospital, a number of doctors have come out and talked about how important it is to get uh, kids back in the classroom for social mental health reasons, which I agree with 100%. My kids need to see other people other than each other. It's a huge problem. And I don't think it's going to be addressed. And I think it's just going to be something that'll just fall by the wayside and we'll have to deal with the ramifications of it. I, I agree totally about the schools. And it was quite a revealing comment when Ford uh, was like, William says we should open them. And people on the science table says, say we shouldn't. I don't know what to do, basically. Real, real good leadership. But I think I was surprised at how positively it was received. And I think it speaks to how low the bar has fallen. I think it's cautious for sure, like arguably too cautious, which maybe we can dig into a bit. But I think they clearly are spooked by the damage they did to themselves in the last one kudos for following the advice but like i saw quite a bit of praise that it was like clear communication and i like kept being like is it like so we're lifting the ban on outdoor gatherings now you can gather with up to five but the stay-at-home order is in place until june 2nd but june 14th is when we're going to do the next steps what's happening between june 2nd and june 14th and this is going to happen once we hit 60 percent, and we hit 60 percent this weekend like there was just like i understood what they were saying but again for clear public communications did it really do that very effectively that was i think my biggest takeaway on the substance of it i feel mostly okay about it um i think what i've been hearing is what you guys are saying i do think they got point, they scored points for being clearer in their communications, but that's sort of relative to the past confusing frameworks that we've had. They, I think they've definitely learned their lesson that we saw clearly they have these three stages and, and here are the benchmarks. One thing that I've heard from public health experts is the reopening for phase three or stage three, I should say, is the is that they want 25% of the population fully vaccinated. And obviously that's raised a lot of flags for some public health experts who there, there's still the risk there when you have larger gatherings, churches or indoor dining, that type of thing being allowed. Whereas like PHAC, the federal um, health agency has said that they, that number should be 75% instead of 25%. So I think that's, that's one thing that we're going to have to keep an eye on. Nobody wants a fourth wave. But one, one aside that I should just mention is that also recently we had a motion um, from the government that would extend their powers under the, the Reopening Ontario Act, which gives them the emergency powers that's being extended until December. So even if the end is in sight, because we are vaccinating much faster than we had been previously, the government is still bracing for potentially having to do rollback to tighter restrictions. And they think that could happen by 
by December or, or something like that. So they are giving themselves this, this leeway just in case they need to roll back. But I don't think that's, that's not what anyone wants to see. It matters to have clearer public messaging because the public plays a huge part in this too. There's a, a social contract. So you need to explain clearly to the public if we uh, lock down for a couple more weeks or the, the hospitalizations are, are at this at this point, we might have to roll back so that there's some buy-in from the public. I think, I think that was key, but I think you're right. Clear to an extent and not much said about schools. I think a lot of folks, a lot of parents that I've been hearing from are just like, why don't we just write it off and start thinking about the summer? I think the we did, the premier did tease summer camps and we did get the official word that that was, that they were going to be opening again come July, hopefully. So I think for kids, I don't know if we're going to get much clarity, but obviously there's only a couple of weeks left and, and we'll have to see, they'll have to figure out the, those differing opinions and, and make a decision because at the end of the day, that's, it's the premier, it's up to the premier to decide. I, I saw something this weekend that was, people were talking about the consent of the governed, how much has this government been able to maintain that in changing these policies on the fly and every couple of weeks, right? How many people did you see gathering in groups of larger than five this weekend? How much has that the government's message been diluted and people decided, I'm going to make my own educated choice. I know what the risks are. I know who's been vaccinated. I, and you know, this government's losing credibility on that when they're not keeping up with everyone who's trying to cope and compensate with everything that's going on and are still able to, on their own, make these decisions without the government sort of telling them that you are or not allowed to do that. What yeah. I don't quite understand, though, is based on the supply and based on the pace that we're going with the vaccines, we're going to be way above 25% by those dates, right? The dates do not match to what will be the reality. It will be far higher. And so they've almost done some damage to the confidence in their own plan by the thresholds being as low as they are. And I don't, that's the piece I didn't quite understand. It's weird. I got to imagine like the, the thing that I think has settled in for people is the government was too bold with reopening before it resulted in a third wave. And I think that's why you saw that, like that anger. And it's weird because, yeah, like I think that the political calculus probably was let's put out a more cautious plan so that we don't get criticized for reopening the economy too quickly, which will make people think there's going to be a fourth wave and get those health experts out there saying those dire things they were back in February and then have it all come true again. Like I think that they really wanted to avoid any risk of that. And so let's put out something that will be perceived as cautious. We'll get the accolades. And then people, I was biking by the Canary District and it was like a music festival out there. Like, like it was people enjoying a really nice weekend. I, it looked fairly safe, but yeah, were those all one household gatherings? No, and the, there were police there, but the police were not walking around arresting people. And I think that we're just going to be in this weird place. And they probably settled into making policy that signals a direction more than gives you actually clarity in what the rules are. I've heard this plan be criticized from a perspective of when you actually get to that stage three and only 25% of people are fully vaccinated, I think you want they want to signal that we're going to be doing things indoors together and that will be safer. And that's probably going to be true. If only 25% of the people are vaccinated, is karaoke really okay? Do you want but to be... It depends on what the goal is because we've changed our goal and it like it's actually okay to have a fourth wave if 
the hospitalizations don't materialize and like the capacity is there to meet it. That was the original, that is the goal of a lockdown is that the hospital system does go get overwhelmed. Not that nobody has COVID because if we wanted a COVID zero strategy, we're approximately 15 months too late for that. And like, we're never going to get to zero. So we're going to vaccinate our way out of it. And so again, I don't know that the messaging is that clear. The US is in a fourth wave, arguably right now, but they're not going to close anything back down. So do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, a fourth. I think when people say fourth wave, what they mean is something that's felt like the last ones. And if only 25% of the people are are fully vaccinated, and I guess we have new variants or whatever, there maybe that's where that risk comes in. But it'll be it'll be interesting to see how this one how this one plays out. Oh, I was just thinking in terms of timelines. For what it's worth, I just wanted to add that the premier's office has previously said that they the goal to get everyone double shots would be towards the end, mid to end September. So I don't know if the premier talking about a two-dose summer is even what his advisors are really saying to him behind the scenes, but obviously it sounds better than a one-dose summer. And I think we're all hoping for that. We'll see. Here's hoping. I want to join that music festival in Canary District Park one of these days. I just need a haircut, really. (laughs) So I want to return us to a story that we have covered on a previous pod, and that is the pending or the previously pending university status for uh, Canada's Christian College, a private Christian university run by Charles McVetty, a right-wing religious force supporter who has previously expressed pretty offensive comments about Islam, same-sex marriage, marriage, evolution, all of the right-wing Christian greatest hits. Last fall, the province proposed granting the college university status as part of an omnibus COVID bill backed before the post-secondary quality assessment board, which sits in the Ministry of Education. There, they do an independent review before that process was complete. When faced with backlash, the government committed to only proclaiming the bill upon the completion of the review process and sort of deference to the fact that a a review was underway. So the bill passed. They could proclaim it into law and give the university a status, but they did not, basically. And now PCAP has come out with a review and they've denied the status. The government has confirmed that they will not be moving forward with Schedule 2 of the act that was passed. And it's worth uh, noting that I think uh, we have a, a interview with Charles McVetty in the Toronto Star where he says that he feels that PCAP fraudulently misrepresented the college to the government. And to my knowledge, we don't have the actual report from PCAP that's been made public. But I'm curious, just because we have some lots of former post-secondary policy here, what factors we think might have have helped contribute to this particular conclusion? And then maybe what was the government's possible strategy here? Like, how did this play out like politically, like behind the scenes? Because it's very weird to pass a bill, not proclaim it until a review process is complete. Like those aren't processes that are usually linked. So correct me if I'm wrong here, but the government could still proclaim this without PCAB's approval, right? Like, They just use PCAB as a cover, essentially, to give certain colleges and universities certain degrees and say, hey, we did this quality assessment and it's all legit um, and above board. So uh, I think they could also use them. You're absolutely right that the bill is still there, could still be proclaimed. And so we actually saw today, just in, just an hour ago, the NDP is planning to table their, a bill of their own that would undo that the bill, the omnibus bill that's on the table. Because even though they've said, the, the minister has said no, any any future minister or government could just, just with a flick of a pen sign that thing into law. So the NDP wants to make sure that never happens. I think Stephen Del Duca, the liberal leader, has also said he's going to repeal that if he becomes premier. So I think we'll see if the government does that. I don't 
I haven't heard indica any indication, but they, they said they're going with PCAB's recommendation. And I think just politically that they avoided a lot of negative headlines. This came out, the news broke on a Friday before a long weekend after 5 p.m., keeping us all on our toes as usual. There's no question period this week, but I'm sure the NDP and the opposition parties would have been hammering the government on this, especially the premier. It's gotten a lot of attention because Charles McVitie is a friend of the premier, a political ally as well, a huge supporter. And I think that's that's why this got a lot of a lot of eyes on it. But that same bill, 213, had also given Redeemer University status as well. And I know that folks in the LGBTQ community had a, a problem with that because Redeemer's code of conduct, it, it doesn't allow outside of a heterosexual marriage. And that that is the LGBTQ community says that's discriminatory. But Redeemer, they went through the PCAB process as well, and they were approved to get the university status. So it's just, I think the fact that it's McVitie specifically is a big part of why this is this has become such a big deal and such a problem. I think one conservative, I don't think they'll, they'll mind me telling you guys that they describe this as this is still a good news thing that they turned it down and this would have been an albatross around Doug Ford's neck that he wouldn't have been able to get off. It's rare that we have uh, information from actual conservative sources on this show. We're not awash in actual words out of conservative staffers here. Always feel free to interrupt with insights from on that regard. Well, behind the scenes, like definitely, I think there were a lot of PCs that, that it, they, they bristled at this. It made them uncomfortable when when this was a hot topic before PCAP had made its decision. We had the Deputy Premier Christine Elliott up there and we had to, like reporters asking her questions uh, in scrums, like we had to press her to say that some of the financial information that had leaked out was was questionable. And that was a big deal for the deputy premier to say, I think that it raises questions, certainly. I'm just very quickly, I'm just talking about how the documents revealed that McVitie uh, and his son were, were given like six figure loans from the school, which is a, a registered charity. And some of those funds were used apparently to buy jet skis and vehicles. These are things that the NDP helped uncover. So I, I the PCAB report isn't public. We don't know the exact reasons why, but the why they were turned down for getting the status. But the minister seems to be going with it for now. I'm sure they'll agree to they're repealing it because they thought they could get away with this in an omnibus bill that nobody would pay attention to. And then they didn't like the heat. And so they cooked up this PCAP thing as an excuse. I think that was fairly obvious from the start. So I think this will go away and Ontario was better for it. Yeah. I, I, I took a quick look at the submission that Canada Christian College made. And it's like 17 pages in total length. Every other university in Ontario is part of a central quality assurance council that has central standards and it is a, is there's one approach. Whereas this was like a paragraph on page 16 about we have policies about this and we have a committee that looks at those policies. And so I would not be surprised. This is my prediction. And maybe this is if there was a breadth and comprehensiveness issue with this particular submission, even on top of all of the social issues here because when i took a look through i was this is what this institution submitted to the ministry to become a degree granting university in the province of ontario it was slim so that including was including yeah. not just arts they wanted to give science degrees right yeah the creationist college wanted to give out bachelors of science like it was always going to be really hard to get through pcab for them yeah, absolutely. Interesting piece here. I'm sure we haven't heard the last of it. We might come back to it when the report comes out. I'm excited to read it. But want to move us uh, finally to the close of the legislature. There is still, despite the fact that there's only really a couple days of sitting left until the fall, a lot of stuff underway. <laughs> 
that would be good to check in on. And a lot of it that hasn't actually made like headlines. I always particularly like this section. Now, important to note before we start going through these bills, the government is only recessing for the summer. So anything that is on the table right now that doesn't get wrapped up can still come back in the fall. It's not as though everything will go away. But uh, yeah, how we do this and is I'll read out the context of a of a bill and we will decide between the four of us if we think it's a good bill, a bad bill or a sketchy bill. Sabrina, I don't know how this I didn't ask if this if this categorization works for your journalistic lens on things. I'm happy to help you guys come to the conclusion by providing any information. <laughs> but I don't know if I can call it good, bad, or sketchy. Typically. We all have fewer government bills than we did the last time we did this. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, Not much left on the order paper, but like you said, just a week left to go. So I don't think there's any chance of, or not a high chance of midnight sittings or extending into June. I think MPPs are all looking forward to a bit of a break. Oh yeah, absolutely. All right, this will be good bill, bad bill, sketchy bill as decided by Chris Alvin and Sam with information from Sabrina. Okay, probably the biggest bill on the table this week is the Building Opportunities for the Skilled Trades Act being tabled by Minister Monty McNaughton. Big moment for him. This bill has passed first and second reading and he will be this week while the legislature is not sitting on the Standing Committee on Econo- going to the Standing Committee on Econ- Economic Affairs to answer questions about it. The bill proposes to replace the College of Trades with a new crown agency called Skilled Trades Ontario with a goal to speed up the apprenticeship process. So Sabrina, you've actually been following this one. So I'm curious if you have any insights into how you think this week's going to go or or this bill in particular. Yeah, this week we're hearing, like you mentioned, at the Finance Committee, there's public hearings. So a lot of trade unions, general contractors, construction associations, industry folks, that type of thing are weighing in on it right now. I actually thought it was interesting. Garfield Dunlop made an appearance too, and Associate Minister Jill Dunlop's dad and is apparently back working in the trades even during his retirement. I think, yeah, like you said, new crown agency. So this is going to replace the college and try to speed up the apprenticeship process. I think the main criticism that I've been hearing, uh, especially from the NDP, is that this is going this bill, while the, the premise to speed up these processes and, and streamline things for apprenticeships and the skilled trades is a good thing. The NDP isn't really happy about the minister getting more power for things like compulsory trades exemptions or ratio reviews. And I guess without getting too much into the weeds, basically a ratio is an employer must employ one uh, like tradesperson for every apprenticeship that needs to be trained. So like the ratio is one to one. And then to decide whether it's compulsory, that means it's uh, regulated and you need a certificate to you know operate legally as an auto body repair person or an electrician, that type of thing. So I think the NDP is a little sketched out by the fact that the minister is going to get more power in this, the in deciding these things. And I think the NDP just wants to make sure that there is transparency in that decision making because employers and tradespeople have have raised issues about this before where they're they're not getting enough information about how these decisions are being made. So I think that's something that we'll have to wait and see how it plays out. There's that's a, a running theme with this government too. A lot of things are decided in regulation. They a lot of ministers say, yes, we're getting more power, but just trust us. So I think that's a big red flag that I'm hearing from the opposition parties on this bill. We've been talking about this. I've been talking about this for almost 10 years now, right? In the Ontario College of Trades, Tim Hudak ran against that years and years ago. And this feels like a watered down version. And they promised, the conservatives had promised to kill. I don't see how this 
Skill Trades Ontario agency is that different other than it takes away the power that the Ontario College of Trades had created to essentially make each trade its own arbiter of whether or not it's compulsory, what its ratios would be. It took away all the self-governance of what the Ontario College of Trades was, and it's now just giving that power to the minister, which, I don't know, means that they prefer uh, to just lobby politicians as opposed to deciding for themselves. I think it was just this big bad thing that they had created, and then they realized that there is some usefulness in having a crown agency governing the skilled trades, except now they decided to make sure all the power lies in the minister's office. I think it is a fine bill. It's not bad or sketchy. I think it's a big climb down for them. They realized they basically need a college of trades. They've renamed it. They're going to say it's more efficient and a streamlined whatever, but like they're creating a new bureaucracy. They have no, you have no ability to control if it will be efficient or not until it's up and running. And I think it's in fairness, quite given their stakeholders, I think a really reasonable, responsible place to land in all in the big mess they created by villainizing a thing that wasn't that bad to begin with. Absolutely. I also wanted to put a bit of a spotlight on MPP Saul Mamakwa's Inherent Right to Safe Drinking Water Act, which amends the Safe Drinking Water Act of 2002 to specify that those working and living on reserves have that same right. It basically it is about specifying Ontarians who live on reserves in and naming them in the bill. It would also require the Minister of the Environment of Ontario in Ontario. Uh, it's not the right title, but we'll just go with that uh, to submit a comprehensive set of recommended standards to the federal government for safe drinking water on reserves, and then to follow up with those reports on a regular basis. This advocacy should be summarized each year in the Ontario government annual drinking water report, which is a thing that I just learned existed when I read this bill. I assume we think this is a good bill, but I think it's also interesting politics. And I wanted to dive into that a little bit because this bill was carried on division at second reading and referred to a standing committee. So I'm not sure it's one that the government might necessarily look to defeat out of hand. I think the politics is definitely interesting. Private members bills, especially from the opposition, uh, they rarely make law. And I think just as a good optics thing, the government could just let it die at committee instead of killing it right at after second reading debate or even at first reading before as soon as it's tabled. But this one's interesting. I think Sol Mamakwa himself is actually, he's pretty effective, I would say, one of the more effective opposition MPPs in getting the government to respond in a meaningful way. I think that's just even his demeanor, but they clearly have a lot of respect for him. He's, you know, the, one of the first Indigenous MPPs here at Queen's Park too. So that's, and has been a huge advocate. So I think that's significant. Th- this could die at committee. But I do think that because it also takes aim at the feds a little bit, or at least would give Ontario an opportunity to take aim at the feds and what they're doing and and not doing in terms of clean drinking water for um, First Nations folks. I think that's probably another bonus, another perk for the PCs in particular, who any opportunity to jab at the federal liberal government, they will do it. And I think this is this is an issue that that a lot of people can get behind. So I think it's good for them. We'll see how it all plays out. Another thing that the government could do is just steal the idea and roll it into some legislation of their own. I mean, to give Saul some credit in some way. But I definitely think that this one, it's a victory for Saul for sure, because these things are so rare. But I think, yeah, we have to watch how it plays out. 
good bill, I think. Actually, when we were in power, like Kathleen Wynne would actually frequently talk about like things that were in federal jurisdiction and like how can the province name, shame, use our systems to make progress. Um, I think this is a great example of that. Good bill. And like to all your points, Sabrina, like one that the government actually, it may be even in their interest to pass. That also is that the route they would take. There's other, they have other levers available to them to maybe do this without actually passing it. So it'll be interesting to see how this one goes. Let's talk about some more opposition motions. Liberal MPP John Fraser wants to amend the Long-Term Care Homes Act to require progress reports to the public on recommendations to in the Long-Term Care COVID-19 Commission's report. I think good, Bill. The commission's report was lengthy. It was detailed. This is past time we dealt with this. I'm pretty unequivocal my good bill here. Although I'm sure the government does not want to make yearly reports about its progress on some of these recommendations, which are recommendations that will require significant investment. Yeah, I think it's good. Smart politics, too, because it's hard to say no to. Yeah, I think they might find a way. <laughs> True. It's, it's I don't know if funny is the right word, but it's you almost feel for the liberals anytime they bring something up about long-term care, because anytime John Grazer talks about his this motion from him in, in, in the house that he just gets uh, like bombarded with attacks about you guys were in power for 15 years and this is the state that we're in. And a lot of reports are not really helping that case, but I think that's, this is more of a forward looking thing. And at least John Frazier's kind of acknowledged we, we didn't really do enough and now you guys are in power. So let's publicly report on the progress to improve long-term care. I don't know if it has much of a chance of surviving, but I guess we'll also have to wait and see on that one. Yeah, absolutely. NDP, MPP, Mart Stiles, and Jessica Bell have a bill that requires the Premier to develop and publish a post-pandemic child and youth action plan focused on supporting child development and mental health. It also establishes a youth secretariat to advise on the creation of this plan and requires review of all legislation for impacts on the well-being of children. Good bill, bad bill, sketchy bill? It's great, but didn't this government kill the youth or child advocate there's no way that this is going anywhere i generally don't like bills that are like a plan to make a plan do you know what i mean that are too like yeah process focused so i'm gonna i'm gonna say bad just for that reason but it's harmless it's fine yeah i don't th- good bad this is where good and bad fail us as descriptors because i'm not against this if i were an mpp in the house i would vote for this but i would grumble for that exact reason in that like you could all we could also just talk to policy experts about what the right things to be doing for children and mental health could be and fund and do those things. I am all about creating youth advisory things too, but also in my experience in government, sometimes, especially when they're organized by government, these can be very pro forma kind of meetings. Like they can be helpful. They are, they are good things to do, but whether you need to put them in legislation and if that makes it any more effective than just something the premier's office organizes, I guess better to have transparently selected group of youth than just the young conservatives. But here we are. Just to add quickly, I think like it is, there is this um, bonus even the same thing with John Frazier's bill about long-term care. This is obviously like who who wants to say no to a youth secretary and a youth action, children and youth action plan. But if the government shuts it down, then the NDP can therefore put out a press release and say that this government is against kids. They voted against our bill. So I think there is some, there's probably some strategy to salvage there for the opposition parties. 
Oh, absolutely. And that is what so many of these bills are about. Let's put something in the window that the government can vote down and we can make a stink about it. A tale as old as time. Uh, Liberal MPP Lucille Collard brought, uh, brought forward the Equity Education for Young Ontarians Act, which requires the Minister of Education to ensure information is available in the curriculum on a number of topics, including the history of colonization, impact on Indigenous people, ongoing racial and social inequities. It also requires the ministry maintain an Education Equity Secretariat, which didn't doesn't that already exist or didn't that exist when we were there which all school boards are required to submit annual equity action plan reports to the bill lost on division in second reading so this will not be becoming law but i thought it was a good one and so i wanted to maybe help make the stink about this because i actually thought i thought it was i thought it was pretty good Yeah, I thought it was good, too. I was surprised, actually, that the PCs never got rid of the Education Equity Secretariot. That felt like ripe for a month-long move. But, like, it's a bill that doesn't really move the yardsticks. Like, it codifies existing things, but, but are important things to protect. So I feel fine about it. There's a little bit of, like, in any liberal bill, there is that question you need to ask about the legacy versus and how much of the legacy do you protect versus how much do you shine a spotlight on versus because we also know this government has a tendency to want to find the liberal things in government and rename them change them do them their own way all right finally we have to talk about the anti-asian racism bills in the house because there are three of them one from each party and they do very similar things one is from pc mpp vincent key who is putting forward a motion to name may anti-racism education month Liberal MPPs Michael Coteau and Lucille Collar want to amend the Anti-Racism Act to name anti-Asian racism specifically, and four NDP MPPs have an act to proclaim May 10th as a day of remembrance and action against anti-Asian racism. So three parties, they want to name something after to recognize anti-Asian racism. What do we what do we think about this? Yes, to amend the Anti-Racism Act to include anti-Asian racism. I don't know why it wouldn't be included already. Sure, let's have another day for remembrance and action against anti-Asian racism. And May seems like an appropriate month, given it's Asian Heritage Month. I'm not sure about making May Anti-Racism Education Month, because I feel like it's not an Asian specific thing and it should be part of a broader education month that's not February or May, in my opinion. Again, this is one of these things that like if I were in the House and I was voting, I would vote in favor of all three of these. I think it's interesting that it's the kind of thing that you could actually imagine party like they probably could have come to some kind of thing together on this. I think it also tells you something about the state of relations between the three parties where, you know, like you could see the this could be the kind of thing that they come together on and i don't know there is a i think this is a this is a really important one to talk about really important one to name and it's, it's timely and we should do this now if you look at the efficacy of naming awareness months for things naming days after things the legislative calendar fills with this kind of thing and i i wonder about it as a strategy as an advocacy or an awareness strategy how many how much time is spent on this in the legislature versus how much it actually does to confront and anti-Asian racism. Not that it's a bad thing, but yeah, I think I, I'm looking for a space in between good and, and, and bad to talk about this because I, we have other, we have abuse prevention week on the docket 
in this term. We have Haitian Flag Day and Nikola Tesla Day as well, all as bells that are in front of us right now. And I, I, I wonder how many people know are ever aware that these things are, are named four or five years out of them being passed by the legislature. It's interesting. I, I should correct my record from earlier because Heritage Month bills and anti-racism awareness days, that type of thing, those private members bills do actually get passed by the PCs. So, so I, sh- I should clarify. But yeah, I do think it's interesting. This could have been an opportunity. And I guess it still could be an opportunity for other parties to co-sponsor this bill and show that they're all working together. I do think that probably the one from the liberals seems the most um, substantial on the policy side, wanting to amend the anti-racism act so that anti-Asian racism specifically is mentioned there and acknowledged as one of the the forms of of racism, like along with anti-Black racism and anti-Indigenous racism and that sort of thing. I think we might see the private members bills chugging along long forward as well. But I think that clearly all parties are recognizing that this is something that needs to be addressed. And the the government here is going to do that in some form, clearly. I I think it's a huge missed opportunity given it's the pandemic, it's COVID, anti-Asian racism has spiked dramatically during the pandemic for it to be a narrative that these parties are coming together or even the government leading on making sure that there isn't any tolerance for, for this type of thing in Ontario, right? This is... They could have shown some leadership on the fact that they're not going to accept that they're going to change things to make sure that people are persecuted for anti-Asian racism. We've seen the videos. We've talked about it on this pod. People getting you know, pushed over, like violence actually happening against older Asian folks in Ontario and in British Columbia. It's bad. And there doesn't seem to be an actual response to it other than, yeah, people stop doing that. That's not a good thing. Let's do something substantial here. Uh, I'm going to pass it to Alvin for the rapid fire because uh, he wrote the rapid fire this week and I forgot it as I am sometimes want to do. I like rapid fire. Rapid fire is a lot of fun. We just have a tough time making it actually rapid. But anyway, I got my first COVID shot on Friday. So part of the Pfizer family. I've been wondering how do I activate this microchip and uh, can we now communicate telepathically? And uh, yeah, how does this work, guys? If it's any solace, Alvin, I'm actually hearing your thoughts before you say them. So I think that means the 5G is working. Okay, but I want you to all be dismayed. Part of my day job is researching misinformation at Ryerson University. And we did a public opinion poll a month ago. One in seven Canadians believe that Bill Gates is pushing an agenda forward to microchip everyone in the world. It is not, it is a widely held conspiracy belief and and we should all be sad about no comment from Sabrina. I thought we were communicating telepathically. You didn't get those thoughts. Okay. (laughs) It's a faulty chip. But let's build on the microchip discussion because everybody was looking for Bill and Melinda Gates' cell phone numbers when they announced that they were getting divorced. And then over the last week to two weeks, we've seen all these news stories of Bill potentially not being that good of a guy. Do we feel like his public persona is is going to take a huge lasting hit or do we think it's just going to bounce back the cheating accusations shocked me like he's such a weird nerd dude yeah. that I just never thought of him in that light. <laughs> I mean. Bill Gates, he's one of these people that the less I know about his personal life, the more I like him. And I feel every insight I get into what his home life is, I, I don't know. It just, I just, I, like, so, something blocks me from engaging with it, really. But yeah, no, I've, I, just because he might not be a great guy doesn't mean he's trying to put 5G in us. I mean, I also read his book, his climate change book. It was great. And you want the message to match the man and not have one taint the other. But uh, speaking of climate action, a federal Hamilton liberal MP, Bob Bertina, has announced he's not running again 
because he's against the Hamilton LRT, which kind of surprised me. But he says it's because it only serves 20% of the population and that it's going to be taxed on the entire city. And he doesn't think that's appropriate. So I wonder if there's going to be like a new litmus test for the Liberal Party in the same way that all new nomination candidates have to be uh, pro-choice, that future Liberal candidates are required to be pro-transit? I have thoughts on this one because I used to live in Hamilton and Bob Bertina was famously anti-LRT when he was in Hamilton, much to the chagrin of anyone, including the vast number of growing families and students who are moving to the west end of the city, which the LRT would connect to the downtown. And right now it is like a long, unpredictable bus ride to get between the two. And I think the whole goal is that you are expand, although it serves a small portion or it's, it doesn't serve the whole city equally. It connects the two centers of economic growth in Hamilton together. And so Bob Bertina has been like this for a long time. I don't know why anyone was surprised, but I do think that it's something that should get vetted uh, in advance. I I think he's one of the few names that you can probably ask students at McMaster about and they would know and they'd be like, yeah, we don't like that guy. So should he, for a party that's trying to appeal to youth, be on the ticket? As someone who grew up in Waterloo, the LRT politics in southwestern Ontario are complicated and I don't think this should be seen as a future harbinger is that the word <laughs> this is weird Hamilton politics what I thought was interesting with Bertina is like what was going on behind the scenes I think the Hill Times had a story out today actually that he might consider uh, running again if the feds change their decision about the LRT funding. But I I thought that was a good insight the Hill Times had about what happens behind the scenes with decision-making and caucus. Bertina says he wasn't consulted before the government made the announcement, if he's been petitioning them since. So I I thought that was interesting in how everything's been operating behind the scenes. But he's he's an interesting character, and I don't know if he's, I think we'll still be seeing him in politics no matter what, especially in Hamilton. For sure. He has that position because it's a position that gets him elected. And it may not be what the city planners in Hamilton want, but it's, it's, he's, he is an interesting character, uh, for sure. <laughs> All right. I think that, that wraps us up for today. Sabrina, uh, thank you so much for joining the pod. It has been a pleasure to have you. And I'm going to do one more call for our listeners. If you haven't checked out Queen's Park Observer, do it. It's, I've been hoping that someone does this in Ontario for some time and it's worth supporting. Yeah. Thank you so much. This is so much fun. I hope you guys have a, Good summer and we can chat soon. That's all the time we have for today. Ontario Loud is hosted by Chris Martin, Grima Tawa Kapoor, Sam Andre, and myself, Alvin Tejo. Thanks to our support crew, Harman Mundi and Fahim Khan. And of course, thank you to our supporters on Patreon. If you'd like to support our show, please visit patreon.com slash Ontario Loud. Follow us on Twitter at Ontario Loud on Instagram at Ontario Loud Podcast or email us at Ontario Loud Mail at gmail.com. You can find past episodes at our website at OntarioLoud.ca. See you next time. Stay safe.